If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we will pick up where we left off last week. And while you're turning there, I want to give you two quick announcements. Uh, The first one is uh, a goal that our elders um, and staff set um, quite a while ago. As we began to look at the values of our church, and we preached through those values, one of the ones uh, that we didn't necessarily preach on made its way into most of the rest, that we wanted to really develop as a church and really help shape the culture of our church was prayer. Uh, We wanted to get better at being a praying church, not just a church that prays, but a praying church. One of the blessings we've had is last week we had Dean Troon in. Many of you sat, uh, if you're a group leader or you just came to one of the trainings and teachings, and one of the ideas that he gave to the elders was helpful to us. And it was the idea that we're going to have a group of people set aside for elders and a group of people set aside for the staff that will make a one-year commitment at a time. And they're going to spend time simply praying over each of those people and all of their family members by name every single day all year long. And so we wanted to do a call-out meeting to see who's interested in being a part of that. The call-out is for next Sunday morning after third service. You're like, well, this is second service. It is. And there'll be one more and then the meeting. We'll come back in here after third service, kind of go into details about what it looks like, what the commitment is. And really, we just believe that we need a lot of prayer. And so we're trying to get serious about it. And so if you're interested in being a part of that, it's next Sunday after third service. We want to invite you to come and be a part of it. The next thing is this, before we don't put, the, don't put it up on the screen yet. Um, yesterday, we had a baptism. And uh, it was uh, Riggins Robinson. He's here. Where, Riggins, sorry, dude. He's in the back. He doesn't want the attention. There he is back there. But I told Riggins that we're going to put a picture up here in a second. And that we're going to celebrate like they celebrated in heaven when he was baptized yesterday, okay? And so when I say one, two, three, you're going to see the picture here in a second. You're going to help celebrate so loud that the student ministry on the other side of the building can be like, what just happened? Fair? If you have a sleeping baby, now's your chance. Okay? Ready? All right, here's a picture of Riggins and his dad, Blake, getting baptized yesterday. And we're going to celebrate with him on one, two, three. Yeah! He's right there in the back. There he is, standing up. Here you go, Riggins. That was awesome. Thank you so much, church. That's awesome. Riggins, you can go back to kids' ministry. All right. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and we'll open up God's word together. Father, we thank you. Oh, I love that. I love the church. Celebrating with one another, uh, just an incredible, uh, incredible thing. And God, as we turn our attention to your word, as we open your word, um, we we do so with reverence, humility. We need you. And so we come to you with that humility and expectation. We ask you to bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the 1990s, there was a professor at Auburn University who gave his class uh, a test. This was a creative writing class, and here it was the test. He said, Here's the assignment. You need to write in the most concise way possible directions from the room we're sitting in right now to get me to the corner store on campus. I need to get to that store from here. Now, what he said was, don't ramble. Don't preach at me. Don't preach a sermon. Don't be too wordy. Don't show off and try to impress me with your vocabulary. I promise I will not be impressed. I'm just a guy that's lost, and I need you in the most crisp and clear way Simple yet effective. Get me to that store. You have the rest of the class, the rest of this hour, 
to fulfill this test, write out these instructions, and turn them in to me. Well, about 30 seconds after they, te- they started this test, after he said, good luck and go, about 30 seconds later, a student gets up in the room, walks up to the professor's desk, drops his paper on the desk, and walks out of the room. The professor grabs the paper, reads it, smirks, puts a big A on it, puts the test back down, and waits for everybody else. What did the paper say? Two simple words. Follow me. Follow me. And got up and walked out. I love that because it's a beautiful and simple truth. This professor needed the easiest way to get from where he was to where he needed to be, and the best way to do it was to give him an example to follow. Follow me. Follow me, and I'll get you where you need to go. This is one of the most important principles of what it means to be a Christian. We are called as Christians to live a life that is worthy of being followed, to give an example to other people on their journey toward Jesus, we're to live our lives in such a way that it's worthy to be followed. So let me create a little bit of tension in the room. And I want you to really wrestle with a question that I'm going to ask you. It won't appear on the screens, but I want you to wrestle with this question and see what it does. Don't answer it out loud, but let me ask this. If everybody, everybody in the church followed Jesus the way that you follow Jesus, would the church be better off or worse? I mean, really follow Jesus day in and day out the way that you're following Jesus day in and day out, would we be better off or or not? Now, I know, I get that the nature of that question is unfair because if we're honest with ourselves, the answer would probably be no. We all have flaws. And in humility, you want to see your own flaws. Like, man, I've got some struggles and battles. I don't know that I want people really doing everything that I do. And yet the Bible clearly lays out that Christians are called to live their lives in such a way that other people could look at that and say, I need to live like that. I want to become more like Jesus, and so I need to follow, as Paul put to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he wrote, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You can follow my example. In my worldview class this week, I taught my students this same principle, this idea that, hey, you need to be equipped so that in turn you can turn around and equip other people, therefore being an example for them to follow by the life that you live. And one of the most crippling ideas that has penetrated the church, the big C church, is that somehow in the life of church there's become this special class of Christian known as clergy or church staff or church leadership that somehow do the ministry of the church while everybody else sits back and watches. So much of church life has become about sitting back and just watching other people do ministry. And that's an unfortunate thing. As a result, many churches look like what Bud Wilkinson, who's the famous coach of the Oklahoma Sooners, described when he was asked a question about football in general. A young reporter came to him and said, hey, coach, how has the game of football contributed to the health and fitness of America? That was his first and last day on the job. That's a weird question, right? The reporter was kind of taken aback, though, when the coach said it hasn't contributed at all, like not even a little bit. And so he said, what do you mean? Like, how has it not contributed at all? And here was his response. Wilkinson said, I define football as 22 men on a field desperately needing rest and 22,000 fans in the stadium desperately needing exercise. <laughs> as we continue in Ephesians, this is what Paul's saying. Every single Christian has a ministry that God has given to them. And coming together as a church is about getting equipped to be able to leave this place and go do the ministry that he's called you to. Let's see what he says. For the sake of context, I want to read to you the passage that we 
preached through last week as well as our passage this week. Would you stand for the reading of God's word out of Ephesians chapter 4? Here's what the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. There's a little bit of confusion when you read through this passage that Paul's writing with the language around descended and ascended and lower regions. And so uh, here's a principle when you're reading the Bible, just something that might be helpful to you. When you come across words or phrases that are confusing and it's like, man, what does that mean? One of the things that you can do is this principle, allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And what I mean by that is this, when you come across a phrase that might be difficult, find other places in the Bible where that same phrase, those same words are used, and try to understand the context of where it's used other places and see if that would help you understand better what's being said here. So like with this phrase, descended to the lower regions of the earth, that's pretty like confusing. But when you look at Isaiah 63, or Isaiah 44, Psalm 63, Psalm 139, you see this same phrase used in your Bible. And every time it's used in scripture, it's used to refer to the created world, earth, like where we live, like the planet, not to some lower region, not to hell. It's used to refer to the created world. So you apply that to Ephesians 4 and you come to understand within the context of verses 1 through 13, the apostle Paul, here's what he's saying. He's saying, we have one Lord, one God and father of all. He's the same one who descended to the earth and lived on the earth then descended to the lower regions of the earth, meaning he died and was buried, and then ascended on high, meaning he resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Paul is making a case saying, Jesus is God, and Jesus has sovereignty over all. And in his sovereignty, in the passage that we studied, he says he gave gifts to his people. And the purpose of those gifts was to equip the church to continue doing ministry, to testify to the truth, of that gospel message. This is what he calls. Now notice the gifts that he gives here. They're not exhaustive. You know that if you've read your New Testament. There's other places where Paul will write to the church at Corinth and in other places where he'll describe the gifts that God gives. Um, he'll do it to the church in Galatia. And, and, and he, gives these, he tells them about these gifts. Now these particular gifts have a purpose and they lay out for us how the equipping of the church takes place. There are gifts that God gives for the purpose of equipping people when they come together so that when they leave, they're ready to do the ministry God has called them to. So it's important for us to understand each of these gifts and the role that they play. Now, I want to be honest with you and up front. There's five gifts listed here in our passage. Two of them don't happen anymore. 
We're going to try to make the case that they're, they're just not gifts that are given anymore, while the other three are. So let's walk through this and see why it is that that might be the case. The first gift that Paul lists in Ephesians 4 is that of an apostle. He says, God gave through the sovereignty and, and his control, gave gifts. And to some, it says, he gave the gift of being an apostle. Now, Paul's already referred to this group in Ephesians chapter 2. Who are they? Well, I think it's important for us to understand the role that the apostles played because you see this word pop up. If you've taken a road trip, particularly on interstates in our country, you might see billboards where people say, apostle so-and-so. It's like, well, what do they mean by that? In Ephesians chapter 4, this word is used pretty specifically to refer to the group of people, and please let me be clear about this, who were commissioned by the Lord Jesus. This is a unique and unrepeatable group of people. They were personally chosen and empowered by Jesus. So let's look through the criteria that they would have had to meet in order to be an apostle. And you'll see why it's impossible for anybody to be one now. The first criteria was this. They were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. They actually saw the resurrected Jesus. So now, immediately, we're like, yeah, everybody else is eliminated. We can't do that anymore. But the apostle Paul becomes this special case. Well, how did Paul? Because he comes on the scene a little bit later. Paul, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, actually reminds them that he met this qualification. He says, I am an apostle as well. I saw the risen Christ. Supernaturally, God gave him the ability to see the, res the resurrected Jesus. Well, the second criteria would be this. They were commissioned by the Lord Jesus, which again, is impossible now. Jesus commissioned them to serve in this specific role for this specific season. The third is they were inspired by the Holy Spirit so that their word became our New Testament. Once again, that criteria cannot be met today. Fourth, their work was accredited by signs and wonders, by miracles. They did miraculous things that affirmed what they were saying and what they were doing. So this is a very unique group, unrepeatable. Nobody else can mark off the criteria that's listed here. And here's why that's important. The authority of the apostles, the authority that God gave them for this special role has been preserved for us in our Bible. We have what God intended for them to give to us in Scripture, so we don't need anything else. God has said, I want you to teach and preach and write, and here it is. We have it preserved for us in the New Testament. This is what distinguishes us from the Catholic Church, because apostolic succession, meaning the authority of the apostles going from one generation to the next, for us is not preserved from one pope to another pope to another pope. For the church, it is, reserved, it is preserved by the passing on of God's word from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Our authority is scripture. And it's important to understand that because when we talk about why the church comes together for the equipping, we're not looking for another authority to come on the scene. We're looking for someone to come and help us better understand the authority we've already been given. That's an important thing to distinguish. That said, the word apostle is used two other ways in your New Testament, right? In John chapter 13, verse 16, it literally means the one who is sent. So it's just describing anyone who's sent to bring a message. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the word apostles used not to describe the way it is in Ephesians 4. It's used in a different sense. And it's used to describe anyone with a message. Anyone that has a message to share, that word is used for them as well. So here, here's what I'm trying to tell you is this. 
if someone who's saying they're an apostle is using one of these other two ways to use that word, then that's fine. It's not a word I would use or be comfortable using. But if that's what they're doing, okay, like that's fine. If, though, they're claiming to have apostolic authority to speak on behalf of God and add to God's word, then we have a problem. Because here in Ephesians 4, it becomes very clear that that's not a gift that was repeatable. The second one on the list is prophets. Now, biblically speaking, from your Old Testament and New Testament, a prophet was simply somebody who spoke on behalf of God. God would give them a message, and you read through your Old Testament, you had all kinds of prophets. They would come on the scene, and they would, God would give them a message, and they would convey that message to everybody else. On behalf of God, they're coming to say. So you'll read things like, thus says the Lord, or the Lord says, or uh, God is saying this to you, and he's calling you to do this. And there was all kinds of messages from the prophets. Now, this was a role that was important to establish the church, but it was also a role that was fading. Because once we have the word of God established, we have everything God intended to say to us. There is now no more reason for somebody to come on the scene and say, thus says the Lord, or God gave me a word to give to you. So I would tell you this, as God has provided his word for us, there is no need for anyone else to add to it. In fact, we're cautioned not to do that in the Bible. So as one of, one of your pastors, and we'll get to that one here in just a second, but as one of your pastors, I would caution you to be cautious of people who come to you and say, God has a word for you. God wants me to tell you this. Or, thus says the Lord over your life, I have something I want to give to you. God has put it on my heart. I need to tell you this thing that God told me to give to you. If the very next thing out of their mouth doesn't line up with this, then I don't think it's the God of the Bible that they're speaking on behalf of. That doesn't mean that you can't say, hey, I just was, I mean, I just have, I, want, I feel like I need to encourage you. The Holy Spirit will lead you to encourage other people, but he'll use the word of God to do it. And the encouragement that you're offering is not some new revelation that's never been given. It's coming from God's word. Here's why this is really, really important. Once these things are established, Paul already makes this defense in Ephesians chapter 2 that this was the role of the prophets and the apostles. That their goal, their, the reason for this special gift was to set this foundation that all of these other gifts could be used to build upon, creating unity in the church, one church family. But the foundation was a unique gift given to unique people that's unrepeatable. And now we have the foundation, the word of God, to build up with all of the other gifts creating unity in the church family. John Stott says it well. He says this, As the foundation on which the church is built, the prophets have no successors any more than the apostles had. For the foundation was laid and finished centuries ago, and we cannot tamper with it in any way today. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the apostle Paul wrote this, It's built, the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, so building on this foundation that the apostles and prophets laid, with Jesus being the cornerstone, the whole building, the church, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So as Paul says here in verse 12, all of these other gifts are given to equip the people for the works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. So what are these other gifts? Well, he gives three as it relates to the equipping of the church. And here's the first one, evangelist. 
So the equipping gifts that are still in the church today, the first one's evangelists. The apostles and prophets gave us the word of God. The evangelists then take the word of God and they have a gift of sharing it with other people in such a way that uh, the message of salvation is made clear to them. You see this used all the time in your New Testament. Uh, the verb to proclaim the gospel is used 54 times in the New Testament. And, and the, the teaching is clear. All Christians are called to evangelize. All Christians. So if you are a Christian, you are called to take the message of the gospel that you have been so blessed by. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 says you've also been entrusted with that message to share it with other people. Nobody's off the hook. Everybody's called to evangelize. But there are some who have a natural gift for it that God has given to them. They're just gifted at evangelism and at sharing this message. They might be missionaries in other countries. They might be in one church. They might be in one community, but they're gifted. And their goal, the reason they have that special gift is to turn around and help the rest of us who aren't as mature with that gift get better at it so that we can reach more people and have unity in the church. The problem is many people in our culture, evangelism has become this muddied thing that the role of the evangelist and instead of being something that's given to you to equip other people, many have made it given this gift so they can build up this platform and leverage it for the advancement of the kingdom. The problem with that is that the gift then becomes about them and not about sharing it with the rest of the church to get better and better so that they can reach the people God has called them to. And that requires the teaching and preaching of God's word. So here's the thing. When it comes to the evangelist, that gift, it has to be built upon the foundation of understanding God's word. And the more they understand God's word, the more that gift matures, they turn around and help other people mature in it as well. The other two gifts that are listed, pastors and teachers, they're kind of grammatically in the original language connected to one another. So you have pastors and teachers. So let me, let me kind of break it down just a little bit. I know we're teacher heavy today, but we'll, we'll survive. All right. These gifts are similar, but they're different. All pastors, shepherds, overseers, same word used in your New Testament, have to be able to teach, but not all teachers are pastors. Okay, that's, that's, keep that in mind. All pastors are called to be teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. And every teacher said, amen. <laughs> Meaning you can have someone with the gift of teaching in the church that might teach in a seminary, but they're not called to shepherd a church. They're using their gift. They might teach a class. They might teach in the church. And their gift, or Christian school, whatever, their gift isn't necessarily to shepherd the flock. And then you have this role of pastor. The word is used as overseer. Shepherd. An overseer in the New Testament is somebody who was tasked with the role of leading the flock, leading the church family. They had this gift of leadership and, and care. And pastor, the idea of a pastor was to take the, like they use the analogy of a shepherd. And so a shepherd has to come to the flock, those who are in the church, and they have to feed the flock. Well, how do they feed them? Well, they feed them with the word of God. This is what the apostles and the prophets built this on. And so the pastor comes and he feeds them well. And then he has to protect them. A shepherd had to protect their flock. And likewise, a pastor shepherd protects the flock from the wolves that would come in and hurt. So the false teaching and the cultural narratives that come and distort the teaching that the prophets and the apostles gave to us, the shepherd overseers, their task is not just to make executive leadership decisions. It's to protect the church family from false teaching. And in addition to that, they cared for the flock. And when there was injury or hurt or pain, the shepherd would come in and care for the flock in the same way. Pastor, shepherd, overseers come in and they care for and they take care of the needs of the congregation. This is why 
We don't call our ministry staff pastors. Now, I understand culturally that word is kind of tossed around, and, and so it's not that big of a deal. Like, we're not like, how dare you? They're not a... But biblically speaking, the Bible word for pastor is the same as that of elder, shepherd, overseer. So if you'll notice, we, we call our, our ministry team that don't serve in the role of elder ministers because that's their role. Like, that's what they're doing. We reserve pastor for elders. So you can go to any one of our elders, start calling them pastor, make them uncomfortable, all right? They don't want to be called that, but that is what the Bible lays out for them. That's their giftedness. God has called them to that role for this season and given them the gift that they need to feed, protect, and care for the church family. Now, there's two staff members that serve as elders, myself and Brian Langford. Both serve, and so calling me a pastor is fine. I'd rather you just called me Rob, and that's it. Uh, but that title makes sense because of the role. Here, here's the point. There's a lot of like, what? Here's the point. When it comes to the equipping gifts of the church, Here's what Paul's trying to get at in Ephesians chapter 4. All of these gifts have to be grounded on the word of God. In order for these gifts, no church will ever reach the maturity that God wants that church to reach if it's not grounded on God's word. Any teaching that doesn't tie you straight to the word of God is not going to fulfill what you need to be equipped. Therefore, we're not going to mature. So if the church can't mature, then the individual Christians in the church will never reach the maturity that God intends for them to reach spiritually if they're not feasting regularly on the word of God. That is the point of God equipping us with gifts. The other thing applies to every single spiritual gift that you read in your New Testament. Every gift. Every single gift that the Holy Spirit gives to the church has the intended purpose of serving other people not the person with the gift. It is a call to serve and empty one's self on the benefit of other people for the glory of God. So it's not about you. It's not about coming to church. I just need to hone my gifts. I need my gift to get better. Who are you serving with that gift? Well, nobody yet. I'm just kind of get better and I'm taking these personality tests and these spiritual tests. Like that's fine to figure out what your gift is, but if your gift continues to be about you, it's not from the Holy Spirit. The purpose of spiritual gifts was to serve, not to be served. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's for the part of equipping. So here's the question when it comes to your giftedness. Why be a part of a church? Why? Like, why come to church? Why should I invest in this place? Why be here all the time? Well, the first reason I would give you is this. You have a spiritual gift. It might not be on the list that we just went over, but God has given you a gift. You've been given a gift from God through the grace given to you in Jesus. And you've been given a church family by the grace of God whose purpose is to equip you in that giftedness to turn around and go and serve other people where God has specifically placed you. It's important for you to understand that. Part of the reason we gather together on Sunday mornings is not so that we can impress you. It's not so that you can come in and say, I really got a lot out of that today. I hope you do but not so that you can be impressed. And I mean that with all sincerity. We pray against that. Part of why we gather is to equip you to scatter. Like really, if you're coming here, Sundays after Sunday after Sunday, and you're leaving this place and you're not a little more equipped than you were before, we're not not doing what God's called us to do. You can get equipped multiple ways. It could be the music that day. 
It could be the preaching and teaching. It could be a class that you go to. It could be a time of prayer that you have in one of the side rooms. It could also be just the eye contact you make and feel encouraged. It could be the fellowship of believers spurring one another on to love and good deeds that lets you leave this place a little more filled up than when you got here, ready to go into the mission field God's calling you into starting Sunday afternoon, not Monday morning. Like the moment you leave this place, you're on the mission field because God has called you on purpose where he's placed you. Every Christian has a purpose. Every day you wake up, it's on purpose. God has said, I've placed you in this house with this wife and these children or this husband and these children. I've placed you in this marriage. I've placed you in that classroom as a teacher. I've placed you in that uh, front office as an administrator. I've placed you in that business. I've placed you in all on that team with those people all on purpose. And he said, I've given you a gift. And when you gather with the church, it's about maturing that gift so you can be sent right back into that mission field and reach those people for Jesus. Let me illustrate for you this way. You are uniquely gifted and you need to understand that. Think about it in the physical way. Let me give you this analogy. Your physical body is unbelievably unique when you study this. The human DNA code can be arranged in one in 10 to the two billionth power ways. One in 10 to the two billionth power ways. I don't know who counted that, right? But it, the research is there. So think about this. A trillion only has 12 zeros behind it. But the DNA code, one to the 10 to the two billionth power, has two billion zeros behind it. Here's the point. You are uniquely made. There is nobody like you. In all of history, there's never been anybody like you. And the same thing is true spiritually. God has given you gifts and experiences that have shaped and molded you into who you are. As a part of the church family, you have a role to play. You have gifts to bring to the table that nobody else can bring, experiences that no one else has lived through. This is, in the truest sense of the word, a church family. But here's the thing I'd want you to know. Number two, your gifts, they have to be matured. You're not just good at it. It's not just like I have a gift and I'm awesome. No, you're not. You're not that awesome. So as a part of the church family, that gift needs to be matured. And it happens through so many different ways in the life of a church family. Third thing is this. Your gifts need to help the maturity of other people's gifts. They need to. A primary part of the mission of the church is to equip you to use your God-given gifts for his glory and other people's benefits. And that happens all day, every day. You will never wake up, take a breath, and not have a purpose if you're a Christian for that day. J.D. Greer says it well. He says this, serving Jesus at work or wherever is far more than giving a Christian theme to your business or staging awkward conversations about Jesus. It's about doing your work for the glory of God and the benefit of his creation and leveraging appropriate opportunities to make disciples as you go through life. Look, when you leave here on Sunday morning, you're on the mission field. And the purpose of that is for you to get equipped when you come here for the work of ministry. Who does the work of ministry? Well, Paul says it's the saints. Who are the saints? You. You're the saints. You leave this place and you go do ministry. And so when you leave today, there's going to be a test handed to you. And that test is going to say, what is the most concise way to get the people that I've entrusted to you from where they are to Jesus? 
And based on the equipping that takes place in your life when you come together as a church family and leave this place, the answer to that is for you to stand up and look at them and say, follow me, follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. It's not just a social club. (laughs) God, as many others have called it, it's not only a hospital for hurting people, though it is. And there is so much relational building that takes place in this. It can feel like that social club where you come together and feel encouraged and you see your friends and it's awesome. And it can be like that hospital where you come and you're hurting and you're broken and you, you get the healing that you need because of the people of God. But Father, it's also a place to come and be equipped because you've called every single one of us to represent you as your ambassadors where you've placed us. And God, you don't do anything on accident. But we can't do this in our own strength. We need the gifts that you've given through the work of your spirit in our lives. And we need the fellowship of believers to help sharpen those gifts, to edify us, to build us up, to mature us, to prepare us for the work of the ministry, to create unity in the church family, God. And so I echo on behalf of our church family the words of Isaiah when you asked who will go for us. Father, here we are. Send us. We want to go and represent you well. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.